Hello, this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. Welcome to the April 2009 podcast. This month, we bring you a full issue with five editorials, eight original research papers, a review article, a special article, a case report, a teaching case of the month, and four book reviews. Sarah Forge will now present the abstracts of each article, and I will comment more on each paper after that. Inspiratory Flow Volume Curve Evaluation for Detecting Upper Airway Disease is by Sterner et al. from the Brooke Army Medical Center in Houston, Texas. The authors retrospectively reviewed all flow volume loops in their pulmonary function testing laboratory over a 12-month period. In patients with normal spirometry or a mild restrictive defect, they inspected the inspiratory curves for truncation, flattening, or absent loop. For patients who had an abnormal inspiratory curve, they examined three flow volume loops to determine if more than one loop showed an inspiratory abnormality. They used the loop that had the best inspiratory and expiratory curves. They also reviewed the medical records for underlying disease processes and evidence of upper airway evaluation. 4.6% of the patients had an abnormal inspiratory curve. 56% of those patients had inspiratory abnormalities on more than two of their flow volume loops. Evaluation of the inspiratory abnormality was undertaken in only 17% of all patients and 30% of patients who had consistently abnormal inspiratory curves. A specific etiology was identified in 52% of the evaluated patients. Vocal cord dysfunction was the most frequent diagnosis. The authors concluded that an abnormal inspiratory curve in the presence of otherwise normal spirometry should prompt an evaluation for the etiology. If more than one of the inspiratory curves is abnormal, both anatomical and functional evaluation should be undertaken for intrathoracic and extrathoracic upper airway obstruction. Next, we have the paper by Watson et al. from the Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C., entitled Clinical and Lung Function Variables Associated with Vocal Cord Dysfunction. They conducted two parallel studies to identify clinical and spirometric variables that suggest vocal cord dysfunction. First, three staff pulmonologists who are blinded to the laryngoscopy results scored three flow volume loops from each pulmonary function testing session on the likelihood that the inspiratory curve indicated vocal cord dysfunction. They also performed a cross-sectional study of clinical characteristics and spirometric data from all patients who underwent laryngoscopy for any indication, including suspected vocal cord dysfunction, over a three-year period. They compared the laryngoscopy findings to the clinical characteristics, spirometry results, and the pulmonologist's assessments of the flow volume loops. The pulmonologists agreed about which flow volume loops predicted vocal cord dysfunction, but those ratings were not predictive of laryngoscopic diagnosis of the disorder. 44% of patients were diagnosed with vocal cord dysfunction. Independent predictors of vocal cord dysfunction included female sex and obesity. 
with the spirometric data from the effort that had been subjectively determined best inspiratory curve and after controlling for the reproducibility of the inspiratory curves, multivariate analysis found none of the spirometric variables predictive of vocal cord dysfunction. The authors concluded that vocal cord dysfunction is difficult to predict with spirometry or flow volume loops. If vocal cord dysfunction is suspected, normal flow volume loop patterns should not influence the decision to perform laryngoscopy. The paper, Detection of Upper Airway Obstruction with Spirometry Results and the Flow Volume Loop, a Comparison of Quantitative and Visual Inspection Criteria, is by Madra Kamian et al. from the Cleveland Clinic. They studied four quantitative and three visual criteria for their ability to identify upper airway obstruction. The quantitative criteria were FEV1 to maximum expiratory flow greater than 10 milliliters per liter per minute. Ratio of the flow at the midpoint of the forced expiratory maneuver to the flow at the midpoint of the forced inspiratory maneuver less than 0.3 or greater than 1. Flow at the midpoint of the forced inspiratory maneuver less than 100 liters per minute and FEV1 to FEV.5 greater than 1.5. The visual criteria were presence of a plateau, biphasic shape, and oscillations. The accepted standard tests for diagnosing upper airway obstruction were bronchoscopy, laryngoscopy, and chest or neck computed tomogram. The prevalence of reported upper airway obstruction was 7.5%. The quantitative criteria showed low sensitivity for detecting upper airway obstruction, but exceeded that of visual criteria. The aggregate criterion increased the sensitivity to 69.4%, which suggests the need for additional criteria to help predict upper airway obstruction. Why Peace Temperature and Humidification During Mechanical Ventilation is by Solomita et al. from the State University of New York at Stony Brook. In an in vitro bench model, the authors measured water vapor delivery with several heated humidification setups and a wide range of minute volumes. The setup included a condenser, hygrometer, and thermometer. The system was first calibrated with a point source humidifier and water pump. The water vapor delivery during non-heated wire humidification and during heated wire humidification with a temperature gradient of plus 3 degrees centigrade, 0 degrees centigrade, and minus 3 degrees centigrade between the humidifier and the Y-piece was then tested. The authors compared 100% saturated gas at 37 degrees centigrade to 75% saturated, which is the recommendation of the International Organization for Standardization. In all of the experiments, the setup was set to provide 35 degrees centigrade at the Y-piece. The authors found that their method for measuring water vapor delivery closely approximated the amount delivered by a calibrated pump, but slightly underestimated the water vapor delivery in all the experiments. 
At all minute ventilations, water vapor delivery during non-heated wire humidification matched or exceeded saturated gas at 37 degrees centigrade, and it was significantly greater than that during heated wire humidification. During heated wire humidification, water vapor delivery varied with the temperature gradient and did not reach full saturation at 37 degrees centigrade at a minute ventilation greater than 6 liters per minute. The authors concluded that maintaining temperature at one point of the inspiratory circuit, such as the Y-piece, does not ensure adequate water vapor delivery. Next is the paper by P. Rott et al. from the M.D. Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, entitled Comparison of Measured versus Predicted Energy Requirements in Critically Ill Cancer Patients. The authors compared the measured and estimated resting energy expenditures in critically ill cancer patients. They measured resting energy expenditure via indirect calorimetry and estimated resting energy expenditure by clinically estimated resting energy expenditure and by use of the Harris-Benedict basal energy expenditure equation. Clinically estimated resting energy expenditure was associated with underfeeding, appropriate feeding, and overfeeding in approximately 15, 15, and 71% of the patients, respectively. The Harris-Benedict basal energy expenditure was associated with underfeeding, appropriate feeding, and overfeeding in approximately 29, 41, and 29% of the patients, respectively. The mean measured resting energy expenditure was similar to the mean Harris-Benedict basal energy expenditure without the addition of stress or activity factors, and both were significantly lower than the mean clinically estimated resting energy expenditure. There was a significant correlation between mean measured resting energy expenditure and mean Harris-Benedict basal energy expenditure but the correlation coefficient between those values was low. The authors concluded that underfeeding and overfeeding are common in critically ill cancer patients when resting energy expenditure was estimated rather than measured. Indirect calorimetry is the method of choice for determining caloric need in critically ill cancer patients, but if indirect calorimetry is not available or feasible, the Harris-Benedict equation without added stress and activity factors is more accurate than the clinically estimated resting energy expenditure. Hoisington et al. from the Cleveland Clinic present a comparison of respiratory care workload with two different nebulizers. They studied the workload effect of adopting a faster nebulizer. During the baseline period, they used the VIX-1 nebulizer with an average nebulization time of 9 minutes to deliver a 3 milliliter bronchodilator dose. During the intervention period, they used the Nebutech HDN with a nebulization time limited to 3 minutes. The per-shift number of procedures was similar during the baseline and intervention periods, as was the per-shift number of nebulizer treatments. 
The per-shift time required for the procedures was greater during the baseline period, and the per-shift time available to deliver optional value-added respiratory therapies was higher in the intervention period. The time savings from the faster nebulizer corresponded to 1.8 full-time equivalents and theoretical net annual savings of $66,491. The authors concluded that the Nebutech HDN substantially reduces nebulizer administration time without adverse effects or events. Bacterial colonization of respiratory therapists' pens in the intensive care unit is by Wolf et al. from Upstate Medical Center in Syracuse, New York. They collected bacteria from pens used by respiratory therapists in an intensive care unit following their work shifts. Pens were obtained from 20 respiratory therapists and cultured, enumerated, and identified by the bacteria. Bacteria were found on 17 of the 20 pens. Coagulase-negative staphylococci were found on all 17 pens. Micrococcus species were found on four pens. The authors concluded that, although they found no organisms that are regularly associated with nosocomial infections, pens can be fomites responsible for nosocomial infections. The next paper by Ms. Streiner et al. comes from Porto Alegre, Brazil, and its title is Optimum Design Parameters for a Therapist-Constructed Positive Expiratory Pressure Therapy Bottle Device. They designed a model composed of a bottle partially filled with water, a compressed air source, a pneumotachometer, and a manometer to evaluate the effects of various tubing diameters and lengths. In the first set of experiments, the positive expiratory pressure bottle had an open top, so there was no pressure other than the atmospheric pressure against the air escaping from the immersed tubing. The distal tip of the tube was 10 centimeters below the surface of the water, and flows of 1, 5, 10, 15, 20, and 25 liters per minute were tested. In the second set of experiments, the authors tested a positive expiratory pressure bottle, the top of which was closed except for an air escape orifice. With tubing of 2 to 6 millimeters inner diameter, the length of the tubing and the flow significantly affected the pressure. With tubing greater than or equal to 8 millimeters inner diameter, there were no significant pressure differences with any of the tubing lengths or flows tested. The 4 millimeter and 6 millimeter air escape orifices significantly increased the pressure, whereas the 8 millimeter air escape orifice did not increase the pressure. The authors concluded that, to obtain a threshold resistor positive expiratory pressure bottle system, the tubing must be greater than or equal to 8 millimeters. The paper, Equations for Estimating the Calorie Needs of Critically Ill Patients, is a review by Walker and Huberger from Veterans Affair Medical Center in Houston, Texas, and the Central Michigan University. 
nutrition may affect clinical outcomes in critically ill patients, and providing either too many or fewer calories than the patient needs can adversely affect outcomes. Calorie needs fluctuate substantially over the course of critical illness, and nutrition delivery is often influenced by the risk of refeeding syndrome, a hypocaloric feeding regimen, lack of feeding access, intolerance of feeding, and feeding delay for procedures. Lean body mass is the strongest determinant of resting energy expenditure, but age, sex, medications, and metabolic stress also influence the calorie requirement. Indirect calorimetry is the accepted standard for determining calorie requirement, but is unavailable or unaffordable in many centers. Moreover, indirect calorimetry is not infallible, and care must be taken when interpreting the results. In the absence of calorimetry, clinicians use equations and clinical judgment to estimate calorie need. In this paper, the authors review seven equations and their prediction accuracy. Understanding an equation's reference population and using the equation with similar patients is essential for the equation to perform similarly. Prediction accuracy among equations is greater than 90% of the measured energy expenditure. Cystic Fibrosis Pulmonary Guidelines Airway Clearance Therapies is from the Clinical Practice Guidelines for Pulmonary Therapies Committee of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Clearance of airway secretions has been a primary therapy for patients with cystic fibrosis, and a variety of airway clearance therapies have been developed. Because airway clearance therapies are intrusive and require considerable time and effort, it is important that appropriate techniques are recommended on the basis of available evidence of efficacy and safety. A systematic review was commissioned, which identified seven unique reviews and 13 additional controlled trials that addressed one or more of the comparisons of interest and were deemed eligible for inclusion. Recommendations for use of airway clearance therapies were made, balancing the quality of evidence and the potential harms and benefits. The committee determined that, although there is a paucity of controlled trials that assess the long-term effects of airway clearance therapies, the evidence quality overall for their use in cystic fibrosis is fair and the benefit is moderate. The committee recommends that airway clearance is performed on a regular basis in all patients. There are no airway clearance therapies demonstrated to be superior to others, so the prescription should be individualized. Aerobic exercise is recommended as an adjunctive therapy to airway clearance and for its additional benefits to overall health. This is Dean Hess, back again with a few thoughts on this month's papers. We begin this issue of Respiratory Care with three papers that deal with flow volume loops in general and the inspiratory flow curve in particular. As pointed out in the editorial by Rupel, the inspiratory flow curve has received minimal attention in guidelines for standardization of spirometry. The 2005 American Thoracic Society European Respiratory Society guidelines on spirometry 
do emphasize examination of the inspiratory curve of the flow volume loop for evidence of intrathoracic or extrathoracic upper airway obstruction. As Ripple points out, it is important that inspiratory curves are reviewed in the context of the clinical question being asked. The paper by Sterner et al. reviewed flow volume loops from a large number of subjects with essentially normal spirometry. As Ripple points out, the most important finding of this study is that almost 50% of the abnormal inspiratory loops were the result of poor effort. Sterner et al. recommend that an abnormal inspiratory curve in the presence of otherwise normal spirometry should prompt further evaluation. If more than one inspiratory curve is abnormal, both anatomical and functional evaluation should be undertaken for intrathoracic and extrathoracic upper airway obstruction. Watson et al. evaluated whether flow volume curves can detect vocal cord dysfunction. They studied a large number of subjects who had vocal cord dysfunction determined by laryngoscopy. With the spirometric data and from the effort that had the subjectively determined best inspiratory curve and after controlling for the reproducibility of the inspiratory curves, none of the spirometric variables were predictive of vocal cord dysfunction. Independent predictors of vocal cord dysfunction included female sex and obesity. The authors concluded that vocal cord dysfunction remains difficult to predict with spirometry or flow volume loops. If vocal cord dysfunction is suspected, normal flow volume loop patterns should not influence the decision to perform laryngoscopy. The third paper related to flow volume loops is by Modricamian et al. Only 7.5% of the subjects in this study had upper airway obstruction. They included visual and quantitative evaluation of flow volume loops and included variables based on inspiratory flow. With evidence from bronchoscopy, computed tomography, and laryngoscopy, they found that neither visual criteria nor individual quantitative measurements that suggested upper airway obstruction were predictive for identifying abnormalities. The combination of the four quantitative criteria showed low sensitivity for detecting upper airway obstruction, but exceeded that of visual criteria. The aggregate criterion increased the sensitivity to 69.4%, which suggests the need for additional criteria to help predict upper airway obstruction. As Branson states in his editorial, Conditioning inspired gases during mechanical ventilation by adding heat and humidity is a well-accepted standard of care. Clinicians often presume that there is adequate humidification in the ventilator circuit if the Y-piece is at a specified temperature. However, control of Y-piece temperature may be inadequate to ensure adequate humidification. Salamita et al developed an in vitro bench model to measure water vapor delivery with heated humidification systems. They found that maintaining temperature at the Y-piece does not ensure adequate water vapor delivery. At a given temperature, humidification may be significantly higher or lower than expected. Because their system collects virtually all water vapor, it measures absolute humidity. It might also be important to measure relative humidity, as both absolute humidity and relative humidity of the inspired gas might be important during mechanical ventilation. As Branson points out, clinical assessment is our most reliable tool because robust humidity sensors are not yet available for clinical use.
Accurate determination of caloric requirements is an essential component of nutritional support in ICU patients. Parat et al. compared measured and estimated resting energy expenditures in critically ill cancer patients. They found that clinically estimated resting energy expenditure was associated with appropriate feeding in approximately 15% of the patients. The Harris-Benedict basal energy expenditure was associated with appropriate feeding in approximately 41% of the patients. They concluded that indirect calorimetry is the method of choice for determining caloric need in critically ill cancer patients. However, if indirect calorimetry is not available or feasible, the Harris-Benedict equation without added stress and activity factors is more accurate than the clinically estimated resting energy expenditure. Also in this issue, Walker and Euberger review the limitations of seven equations to predict energy expenditure. They conclude that prediction equations applied to critically ill patients are rarely within 10% of the measured energy expenditure and recommend that indirect calorimetry should be used to determine caloric needs in critically ill patients. Differing from Perot et al., Walker and Euberger do not recommend use of the Harris-Benedict equation. If a prediction equation must be used, Walker and Euberger favor the 1998 and 2003 Penn State equations, the 1992 Arton-Jones equation, and the Swimanner equation. In an accompanying editorial, MacArthur suggests that indirect calorimetry is the method of choice to estimate caloric requirements in critically ill, mechanically ventilated patients. Aerosol therapy by small volume nebulizer accounts for a large proportion of the respiratory care workload. Treatment time is mostly nebulization time, which is highly variable depending on nebulizer design. Hossington et al. studied the workload effect of adopting a faster nebulizer. They reported a time savings from the faster nebulizer that corresponded to 1.8 full-time equivalents. They suggest that these time savings could be used for value-added patient care activities, and the shorter treatment times can play a role in coping with the national shortage of qualified respiratory therapists. In an accompanying editorial, Calise points out that conversion from nebulizer to meter dose inhaler or dry powder inhaler can also allow more efficient administration of bronchodilators and saves substantial time. Bronchodilator protocols, especially those that include long-acting inhaled bronchodilators, can also reduce workload and benefit patients. Prevention of nosocomial infections is receiving a lot of attention in acute care hospitals. Person-to-person -person transmission of microorganisms is well recognized, but the role of fomites in nosocomial infection is not as well understood. Little attention has been paid to non-medical devices as fomites. Wolf et al. collected bacteria from pens used by respiratory therapists in an intensive care unit following their work shifts. Although they found no organisms that are regularly associated with nosocomial infections, their results suggest that pens can be fomites responsible for nosocomial infections. The authors suggest that protocols to reduce the transmission of infectious agents may need to be extended to writing instruments. One possible measure is to assign specific writing instruments to specific rooms.
Positive expiratory pressure therapy uses positive airway pressure generated by either a fixed orifice resistor or a threshold resistor. A clinician can easily build a positive expiratory pressure bottle from low-cost parts, and a homemade positive expiratory pressure bottle is an inexpensive alternative to commercially available devices. Ms. Striner et al. evaluated the performance of such a homemade system. The results of this study should be of interest to those who choose a homemade system over more expensive commercial alternatives. As stated by Schechter, airway clearance therapy is considered one of the cornerstones of therapy for the treatment of patients with cystic fibrosis, and a variety of airway clearance therapies have been developed. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation established a committee to examine the clinical evidence for airway clearance therapy and provide guidance for their use. The clinical practice guidelines developed by this committee are published in this issue of Respiratory Care. The committee recommends that airway clearance be performed on a regular basis in all patients with cystic fibrosis. Because there are no airway clearance therapies that have been shown to be superior to others, the specific therapies should be individualized. Aerobic exercise is also recommended as an adjunctive therapy for airway clearance. This month's case report describes the management of a patient with post-traumatic pulmonary pneumocyst. The teaching case of the month describes the care of a 96-year-old woman who presents many years after receiving therapeutic pneumothorax to treat tuberculosis. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.